Welcome to the SOSV Climate Tech Summit podcast series. I am the AI voice of Ben Joff, a partner at SOSV and co-curator of the summit. In this episode, three scientists working at notable venture funds, Klee Colster, partner and head of science at Lower Carbon, Ken Caldeira, senior scientist at Breakthrough Energy, and Susan Schofer, partner and chief science officer at SOSV's HACS program, discuss the importance of having PhD scientists on venture capital teams and how they play a role in translating technical research into marketable solutions. They also touch on the relationship between science and investment in their respective firms, the need for diverse expertise, and the transition from academia to investing. Overall, they emphasize the importance of combining technical knowledge with market understanding to make informed investment decisions in the field of climate tech. This conversation is moderated by Tim Dechant, senior climate reporter at TechCrunch Plus. All right, thanks for joining us, everyone. Over the last several years, as climate investing has become more sophisticated, venture capital firms have been adding PhD scientists to their teams. In this session, we'll be diving into the trend and how it works at different firms. I'll have the inter speakers introduce themselves and we can start with Clea. Hey, Tim, thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Clea, I'm a partner and the head of science at Lower Carbon Capital. We're an early stage venture fund with just over 2 billion in AUM, looking to back the most ambitious founders developing solutions to unfuck the planet, as we say. Um, we think of that in three broad categories, reducing emissions, removing CO2 from the atmosphere, and buying more time. What got me here was I'm a chemical engineering PhD by training. I spent time going deep into carbon capture and storage, really with the motivation to work on some of the uh, most pertinent technologies for decarbonization and, uh, and reducing emissions across all sectors. Technologies that are better, cheaper, and faster are those that will be deployed and adopted first. And that's ultimately what got me super excited about being on the investment side, being able to work with the founders that are developing the most cutting edge solutions to climate change. Thanks, Cleo. Susan, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, great. Hi, thanks, Tim and everyone for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Um, I'm Susan Schofer. I'm a partner at SOSV, um, and I'm also chief science officer for Hacks, which is our hard tech startup development program. Uh, we help early stage hardware and hard tech founders uh, to really accelerate what they're doing by helping them with hands-on engineering um, and really helping them to de-risk their, their businesses. Um, just a quick note about my background. Uh, I have a PhD in chemistry. Um, I was lucky to land myself in industry early on in my career, where I really learned that while science and technology are core to innovation and really the foundation of, of many innovations that are exciting and transformative, there are so many other pieces to really bringing that innovation to market that, that are needed to make a big impact. So I've spent my career really on all of the spectrum from early stage technologies through to early stage efforts to commercialize and, and taking those technologies to market. Um, and now kind of excited to play a role on the investor side and, and get a chance to help a lot of different founders along that journey. Thank you, Susan. And uh, Ken, why don't you finish us off? Hi, my name is Ken Caldera and I'm senior scientist at Breakthrough Energy, which is a uh, nonprofit funded by Bill Gates aimed at commercializing startup companies uh, with, uh, who are trying to innovate to address climate change challenges. I also help bring scientific and technical information to Bill Gates and other organizations that he supports. 
And also Bill supports a research group for me on the Stanford campus. And so I'm actively managing a research group while I'm helping to bring information into various Gates supported organizations. Not busy at all. <laughs> it's fun, it's super fun. Great, well, thank you everyone. So I wanted to start off uh, by asking kind of a, a very broad question. Um, why, why aren't all venture capital firms investing in climate tech doing this? Why don't they all have PhD level scientists on staff? And maybe Cleo, we can start with you. Sure. <laughs> Uh, I think they will all have PhD level scientists on staff soon enough. Um, I think that uh, we, the, the, the role that, that I see myself playing is ultimately being a translator. Um, having a technical PhD is, is great, but that's, but it's great because I can also speak VC language and be an ally ultimately to our technical founders uh, in being able to translate what they think is most important to what I know the VCs and ultimately markets think are most important. Um, and I think that will continue to be recognized and, and be, and, and I think it ultimately plays to our really core strength that myself and my colleagues um, have. Ken, do you have any views on that? Yeah, I think often there's a bit of hubris involved in that various uh, founders come in with a nice PowerPoint presentation that looks convincing and they tell the venture capitalists that, oh, our idea is so advanced that the academics don't really understand what we're doing, so no need to speak with them. And then the VC thinks, well, I have a good technical background, I can understand things. And so I, I think uh, there's a, a overconfidence on the part of many people that leads people not seeking the amount of external advice that they should. And do you see people coming on staff more or do you see this as something that uh, maybe an advisory role could fill? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I mean, first of all, I'm playing an advisory role, but I find that, I mean, there's a number of questions where I have sufficient expertise to address that question myself, but I think more important is uh, that I've developed a pretty broad network of among scientists in a wide range of disciplines. And so if there's a question about batteries or hydrogen storage or, or uh, you know, the future of solar photovoltaics or something, I'm not going to have expertise in all those fields, but I, there's a friend of a friend of a friend who is an expert in that or who knows who the expert is. And so I see a big fraction of my role is finding the, the expert with deep domain expertise and then translating what they say into language that people who are less expert can understand. That makes sense. And Susan, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think all the things that have been said are, are really resonating with me. Uh, I think it's really all about um, taking the technical information, which is, of course, so critical for so many of the things we're looking at in climate tech, because they are deeply technical, and being able to translate that, right? Because in my mind, the technical due diligence, of course, matters and understanding the technology deeply enough to validate, you know, does this not break the laws of physics or thermodynamics here? And so we can, we can validate that. But then also really saying, how does this play in the context of the economics of the system that we're trying to really replace here? How does this play out in terms of the business model that really needs to happen? So that's why I think it's important to to put those pieces together. And that's the role that often I'm playing in terms of 
as Ken is saying, digging in and finding technical experts that know way more than me, either about a technology or about a field and sort of a business and a opportunity, but then also trying to put those together so that we can play back that context and that and translate that for the rest of our colleagues. I think what Susan just said about markets and economics is really critical because often the physical scientist who's developing the technology doesn't really understand the economic environment. And so it's really uh, bringing that technical information to people who have a broader understanding. Yeah, I think that brings up um, a question I had, which is, you know, what is the relationship like at your firms um, between the science first uh, folks and the investment first, first folks? And specifically, like what happens if there's a disagreement? You know, Susan, you brought up the fact that um, you have to think about the science and the markets. And, you know, is that sometimes in the same person? If it's in different people, how is that sorted out? I mean, for us, I think it's it's all one and the same. We don't really distinguish between, we don't have like, here's our technical team and here's our investment team. The technical people have expertise and are on the investment team. And we have a discussion that's holistic across those two things. And I think that's a good approach because what that means is that you know, we're looking at both. Of course, we're not going to invest in something where we can't validate that the tech is legitimate and we understand it and we believe in it. But at the same time, we wouldn't invest in, we don't invest in technology. We invest in things that have, the technologies that have the opportunity to make an impact that can be turned into products that can go into markets that we understand. So I think that all needs to be looked at holistically. And that's certainly how we approach it. Yeah. Ken, is it any different at Breakthrough? Well, first of all, Breakthrough has two parts. Our sister organization is Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is the for-profit investment firm. And the technical evaluation for that is led by Eric Toon, who's really good. And I don't think we've ever really disagreed. I mean, one thing about science is that if you can establish the facts and the data, intelligent, well-informed people can agree. I don't pretend to have expertise in markets or policy drivers. And, and so I leave the business evaluation to others. And so I'm, my role is pretty much restricted to technical evaluation. And there's really never been a conflict uh, that's arisen. I think what we're, if I can add, um, the, the point about it really being a holistic approach is a, is a very important one. I mean, where where we are is uh, is the two are, are very much intertwined and, and each investor essentially uh, will play a portion of, of both of those roles or it's, or it's a group effort where we'll discuss it. Um, the reason that's particularly important, important at the early stage is that ultimately a lot of the milestones that you're setting for the business will be technical milestones and technical milestones that are looking to translate into commercial milestones. Another part of that is how do you how do you assess that a certain amount of funding is enough or too much uh, and what kind of resources talent wise um, or expertise wise do you need? Now, I'm not presupposing that any of us knows all of that, but um, but we do have uh, we do have a different kind of intuition about about that because we will have seen both sides at this point um, and can and can speak a certain extent of, of both languages. And that also means that we can, I think the role that a VC plays is ultimately selling our founders to the world and selling what uh, climate tech is to the world. I think that's probably the most important role that I will play in my, in my lifetime to ensure that uh, the world understands why, why and where um, 
the money should be going towards uh, towards some of the most important um, technical challenges and and endeavors. Um, and being able to being able to do that, um, being able to translate those two things um, is 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 really critical and and will ultimately help founders be able to continue to access funding, I think, um, in providing some of that both that both some of that validation, but also some of that kind of uh, refined thinking around setting milestones around uh, around technology that can translate into commercial outcomes that are translatable to the broader VC and investment world. It's, it's also important for us to have humility because Breakthrough has invested in some things that you know, I'm a little bit skeptical of, but uh, you know, this is a game of playing a bunch of long bets and, and, you know, I would hate to, for something to have been really good. And I was the one who squashed it. And so, you know, so there's, a, a, I think Susan said about this before, it does it pass basic tests of thermodynamics and does it do energy balance? And, you know, at that point, there could be differences about what the prospects for a technology area is. And, and I could raise my skepticism, but I'm not going to try to battle against other things that make prima facie sense, even if I'm skeptical. Yeah. And I think we all bring a pretty healthy amount of, or we should bring a, a very healthy amount of skepticism. Um, and I think we, we can by, uh, by accessing um, other experts um, as well. But ultimately it's also about being able to take that, to take the kind of risk that you want to take because the outcomes can be inordinate and um, and being able to be sober about what those risks are is really key to what we do so that we can ultimately invest in in things that have the the ability to you know with some probability uh, make a really really big difference yeah so you all mentioned or alluded to the idea that the risks change as the investment stages change um, it, does that change who's looking at deals at different phases? You know, I know as a scientist, you're probably more likely to be brought in at the earlier stage. Do you uh, follow those deals as they continue through different stages or do you bring in other partners at later stages? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's there's definitely a, a point at which uh, companies will graduate from, uh, you know, being in a position where they're, where they're still retiring technical risk uh, to a place where they have demonstrated their operation at a certain scale, and they've translated it to, um, say, project finance markets or growth equity markets. And then you can have a, a different type of investor that uh, that comes in and helps play that role, which ends up really being a a, a significant financing role and how to uh, frame commercial contracts to be able to access more financing. And yeah, that's definitely a that that's definitely an evolving an evolving set of criteria that you want as a partner. Susan, do you see that uh, playing out at, at SOSV and Hacks? Yeah, I mean, you know, we we always invest at the pre-seed stage, and then we follow our companies along, and and we do continue to follow and invest into them as they go through seed and Series A and even B and C rounds. Certainly, of course, they de-risk technically and and more fundamentally. You know, the more fundamental science is really at that earliest of stages. I think there's an important role um, to play in really helping as they take that technology and productize it, where there still is a healthy dose of, of technical expertise that goes into that. So I do see us playing a role in helping them because, you know, 
technology and product are not the same thing, but I think they're on a continuum and they're, there's always a very healthy back and forth from sort of market and customer back through through the lens of product into the technology. And so I think there is a, a role for technology and scientific expertise to play there in just scoping that, right? And keeping that sort of in a pocket and in a window that that makes sense where you're you're meeting the market need, but you're also doing what's most feasible and most reasonable for your technology. So I think you continue to play a role in in helping to inform that, certainly for companies that are, you know, first time founders or early stage. Um, but of course, the technology becomes more de-risked and less fundamentally of, of scientific, foundational scientific efforts at that point. Yeah, so Breakthrough Energy is the nonprofit side of things, and that's more taking things that are just off the ben lab benchtop and trying to make a startup company out of it. And it's really more about giving grants to companies. And, and, and so I'm more involved in this sort of basic vetting of ideas there. Other people are vetting the teams. And then at the next scale where you're going from startup company and trying to scale that up and commercialize it, that's Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is the for-profit side which is then Eric Toon and his team over there. And so I'm really at more at the early stage uh, concept vetting stage. Yeah, so one thing I'm wondering is how did you all make the transition or feel like you still are maybe making the transition from that world of science into uh, the world of investing? Susan, we can start with you on this one. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think as I alluded to in, in the very beginning of my intro, as soon as I uh, opened my eyes to the world of industry, like I realized, A, that, you know, using science for, for impact and for applications is, is very exciting for me. And just that broader context of how it might fit into the world is quite exciting and a, and a cool challenge, right? Because there's an opportunity for big impact, but also because there's some challenges that you need to face along the way. Um, I think my transition was fairly gradual. You know, I spent about over 15 years of my career in industry, working initially in R&D roles. I got very interested in the commercial side early on. I thought, oh, I'll just keep working as an R&D scientist and eventually I'll I'll just be on the business side. That's just gonna happen. Uh, you know, Gradually I learned that, okay, if I want that type of role, I have to ask for it. I was lucky to then have an opportunity to really lead up a product vertical as more of a technical product lead, where I really started to learn some of the product thinking and, and got to set specifications for a brand new product in an existing industry. Um, and then kind of took that even further because was really interested in partnerships and collaborations. So kind of had an opportunity to lead up commercialization for a biomaterials company. So ultimately it was fairly gradual and really putting these different pieces together, both in different roles, but also in a few different companies in the material sector, in biotech, so that I could see the full pieces of the picture. Um, and largely just by doing, right, in, in startup companies where they kind of let you hold the keys to the kingdom and try it out and, and hopefully hopefully succeed more than you fail, but, you know, learn, learn a lot of things along the way. Um, and then now, you know, looking at this from the other side of the table, um, having the chance to do that as an investor again is is mostly just kind of learning as I as I go and from my peers that are and my mentors that are teaching me along the way. Yeah, and Ken, you're still in both worlds, right? Like, how's that working for you? Yeah, well, it's been really uh, exciting and fun for me, and also for the postdocs in my group because I used to when I was just an academic, which was up until about three years ago. You know, we, we would look at trying to get a paper in a good journal as our goal. And now the papers, academic studies are a means and the goal is to get people to change what they do. And, and just as an example, um, well, Breakthrough Energy has a lobbying arm and 
they helped to to lobby for um, subsidies for uh, low carbon hydrogen uh, production. And there was a paper that came out that said, oh, hydrogen itself acts as a greenhouse gas. And so then there was all this meme of like, oh, are we just going from one greenhouse gas to another? And, and so the policy team asked, oh, can we do a study that would put the greenhouse effect of hydrogen in context of you know what would happen if you burn fossil fuels? And so we did a peer-reviewed study on that and got it published. But the, really the goal was for them to have some images that they could take the Senate staffers and show the staffers what the context is. Or a similar one, you know, we have the most diverse group in the world. And just in the economics literature, there just wasn't a paper on the valuing of cost-saving innovation towards addressing climate goals. And so we did a paper on that, that again, um, it could be used by the various policy people to, to stress the need for innovation in this area. And so we've changed our perspective rather than the, the studies being a goal, the studies are a means to change what people do. And it's really been invigorating both to me and the postdocs. And Clea, you made the transition out of academia relatively quickly, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. And even what I did in my PhD was ultimately understanding technology advancement, uh, financial incentives, and uh, and policy to, to, to really understand what what carbon capture and storage could do at what scale and what timeline um, and what needed to happen from a from a technical standpoint to to be to ultimately enable that. Um, then I went on to I'd say a, a pretty um, market facing role in um, in energy consulting where I worked with utilities and used mathematical optimization to uh, model grids ultimately across North America. And then the engineering background kind of led me into this this world of of being very excited about the new technologies that were coming forward. So it's it's really that combination, I think, of experiences and perspectives. And when you see a new opportunity, being able to say, okay, that I know that that fits in this particular area and translates to this particular opportunity size. So that's just that's been a very exciting journey, and um, and I think the the notion of being a translator is something that I feel pretty deeply, and I think has motivated a lot of that path. Ken, I think you had something to add, maybe. Yeah, I just wanted to say this is just something that came up this week. Uh, there was a discussion about oh, as solar costs come down, you know, what does that mean about investment in other areas and. So we did some numerical simulations of well, what, what would happen in the limit of free solar. And in the limit of free solar today, it would be cheaper to provide electricity at night just burning natural gas because storage technologies tend to be costly or inefficient. And, and so you could just think it through. We did some numerical simulations that showed that, oh, if as solar costs decrease, the value of storage technologies that can transfer some of that energy from day to night become increasingly important. And so that maybe we should look more deeply at storage technologies that might be able to do this. And so that's this kind of analysis that we might do to help people think through where they might want to invest. So, Susan, I know you're sitting in the hacks offices. How, um, how hands-on do you get there with this kind of stuff? Um, really hands-on. Yeah. I mean, I keep muting myself here in the background because there's like drilling or hammering happening. Um, so, you know, we, we have our own engineering team. So that's mechanical engineers, mechatronics engineers, electrical engineers that really do actually build prototypes for our teams. I mean, obviously in collaboration, right? We're not 
fundamentally inventing their core technology, but what we are doing is a lot of systems integration, really helping them take what's a lab level prototype, as I would call it, kind of kludge together that they could build in their garage or in a, in a chemical fume hood, um, and then taking that to the next level where we actually can help them design it, where we can integrate the parts, where we can think through you know, a bit of the supply chain and, and strategic sourcing on it, as well as just the design of it to, to make it into something that they would then be more ready to show to a customer and start to get some real traction and product market fit. And when something falls outside of your area of expertise, I know, Ken, you alluded to this beforehand, but I want to touch a little bit more specifically on this. What do you do? Who do you turn to? And at what point do you make that decision? Well, for the last 15 years, I've been helping do organize learning sessions for Bill Gates. And that, you know, so if he gets interested in fusion or transmission or whatever, we think, you know, we ask, okay, who are the three best people in the world? on this and then try to track them down and say, hey, do you want to come and meet with Bill Gates? And so that's been his kind of convening power that's beyond what most people have. And so 15 years of doing that has given me a pretty good network into a wide range of areas. And so, but basically I proceed by asking people who is the best person you, you know, first of all, I obviously look at citation and this and see who's written key papers, but I'll just ask people who do you, who do you think is the best person on this? And then when I'm talking to them, I'll ask them, who do you think is the best person on this? And kind of follow those networks. Yeah, Cleo, how about yourself? I mean, Bill Gates' oh, convening power helps a lot. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll do what we can internally and then, um, and then through our networks um, from kind of various schools and, and academic groups around the world, uh, we'll reach out to, to those that have, that are, that are known to be the best in that, in that field, um, ideally get multiple of those perspectives and use that to translate uh, to translate that into into our own assessment. Uh, given everything else involved in in company building, we'll also ask the founders themselves who their particular references are or uh, or academic groups that they've worked with. Um, thankfully, we have a pretty good spread within our team in terms of both academic institutions um, in the U.S. and and globally uh, and and say aggregate aggregate those perspectives and translate that into into our own. One thing we do is look for people like ask who do you disagree with but respect. You know that this thing of and also who I always try to find people you know who will provide information that will disrupt somebody's priors, right? So the you know who who has information that will disrupt the beliefs of the people they're speaking to and and so trying to get that diversity of voices is really important. Susan, at what point do you make that decision, time to look for other expertise? Um, you know, pretty early on oftentimes, because I think it's it's obviously impossible for any one of us to have expertise in all these different technical disciplines and all these different businesses, right? So, I mean, I tend to rely heavily on my network um, as well as our team's network, but really, you know, as we look at things in biotech or synthetic biology, um, you know, we have a whole network of people we can go to. As we're thinking about, you know, the future of protein and protein production, I've been working on a thesis around biomanufacturing. And so understanding, you know, what are the key unlocks here? What does downstream processing really look like? I happen to have a lot of former colleagues in that space. So really trying to talk to, it's less so for me, at least about 
perhaps going to the premier expert on any one thing and more so going to a few people who have experience in that space and really trying to understand what is their exact journey like? What is what is their day-to-day -day look like if they're doing downstream processing out of a fermentation tank? Or what has the experience been like in the space and the business, right? So getting a few perspectives from people who have been there, done that, I think for me is most valuable. And oftentimes, again, they're providing me both with a technical perspective and explaining why, you know, it's hard if you break open an organism and then have to try to purify the protein that becomes complicated and a bit messy. So understanding that from a technical point of view, but also understanding it from a practical point of view, from a cost point of view, you know, what does that translate into in terms of the impact to your business and what would be a meaningful unlock? Um, you know, if they're making a product that goes into dairy, for example, we could replace it. If they're making a product that might go into vaccines or for pharmaceutical uses, it might be a little harder to replace it and we're a lot less cost sensitive. So understanding those dynamics as as they translate and really impact on how the technology needs to perform and what that needs to do, I think is is the heart of what we're trying to get at there. But I tend to go to experts pretty early and I tend to try to get a few different experts in the room to try to explain the overall context of the space. So we're about to wrap up here. Um, one final question, one sentence each, if you can. Uh, if I were starting a VC firm focused on climate tech, how would I go about adding a PhD to my staff? How do you find them? I'd say find find those that um, that have a propensity to to want to translate technical research into um, into things that are relevant for for the world. Um, uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Christina Chang, um, after doing her PhD in physical chemistry, went to ARPA-E, the Moonshot Organization of, of the DOE. I think that has been the path for quite a few PhDs that we've seen in BC because they've gotten that perspective of uh, how does something get funded and uh, and what are some of its, its market challenges, um, which is very well suited to ultimately joining a VC firm. Yeah. Ken? One of the smartest and most creative people I know is Oliver Morton, who's a journalist who writes for The Economist. And I think really the person doesn't necessarily have to have a PhD. They have to be science literate and good at talking to people and asking questions. And so, you know, I think it could be a PhD. It could be an all but PhD. It could be a science journalist, but you need somebody who's good at networking and who understands science broadly and then who can translate the detailed expert descriptions in terms that the investors can understand yeah and susan do you want to wrap us up yeah sure i mean i think importantly someone who has experience taking technology and applying it right because again like it's not just about the technology piece it's about it's about the applying it. So I think someone who's had a bit of that journey and has that perspective is important. And then second of all, to what Ken's saying, someone who's not shy and, and kind of in that, I think in academia, we tend to have the mindset like, I need to know everything. It's important that I know the answers and I need to find this from first principles and discover it myself. This is like someone who's willing to go out and ask experts and talk to people and triangulate on an answer with, with an informed opinion that comes from beyond their own expertise. Excellent. Well, I think that's it for us. Clea, Susan, Ken, thank you for joining me.